hope you're well. We're going to talk about politics today. Yes. We like it when preachers do that. We don't like it when people we've invited around for dinner do that. But we like it when preachers do that. And immediately, um, many of you, I imagine, are thinking, okay, here we go. What's this going to be about? Am I going to be mortified? Am I going to be offended? Am I going to have all my prejudices reinforced? Who knows? I don't know if you've noticed, there's quite a lot of politics going on at the moment. It seems to be in the news a bit. It's probably in many of our minds in one way or another. And I, um, I opened my Bible to uh, read it this morning as I try to do most days. And uh, the psalm that I had to read, I believe it was just God's timing for me to read uh, today, right at the start of this. So I've said we're going to talk about politics. So already some of you, your heart is racing a little bit more. You're engaged. You're keen. Well, Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And I feel that's what God wanted to say to us this morning. I just read the psalm and I thought, Lord, this is what you're wanting to say. We're going to think about some things, be challenged by some things, chew some things through, I hope. But we come to a point, and this will be the whole point really of the preach, that we, we, we must end up where we say, yeah, we hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. People put their hope and their trust in many things, and politics can be one of them. And the word of the Lord says... Put your trust in the Lord. And so that's what I want us to do. We are continuing our new preaching series uh, this morning that we've called Staying Healthy. And we're going to look at Christians having a healthy relationship with government. And I guess even when we say that, we're asking the question, is that even possible? It's an important question because God has spoken to us about it. He said some things very clearly that we're going to look at. It's an important question because many of us feel very strongly about it. And we can think, well, I know what's right, and so I know what I must think, and I know what I must do, and I'm going to do that. And we sometimes do it without necessarily looking at what God has said. And so I want us to look at what God has said, because we need to obey him in everything we do. So it's important for Christians. It's important if you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today, you're exploring, thinking, oh, that alpha thing looks interesting, but all Christians and politics, this could be my kind of, you know, This could be the end of it for me. I might walk out of it at the end of uh, this preach. Well, my point today is to help you to see the hope that we have as Christians. I want to help you to see how we think and and how the Bible encourages us to think. But I'm also wanting you to see the hope we have because you might be feeling hopeless right now. You might be looking at the world and thinking, this is not going how I had anticipated it going. And so I'm concerned, I'm worried, I'm anxious, uh, I'm nervous. Everything I look at the news makes me feel more nervous. I don't feel like I've got much hope right now, and I want to show you what real hope looks like. Or you might be thinking, things are finally starting to go how I want them to go. All these young people seem a bit upset, but I'm fine, and I'm thinking this is how I wanted things to be, and I'm getting more and more confident. Equally, therefore, you need to hear what real hope looks like. What kind of attitude towards governments are Christians meant to have? Well, there's an answer in Paul's first letter to Timothy. 
And so we're going to look at that, as well as other places in the Bible. We're going to uh, zoom out a little bit and try and get a big perspective on this whole thing. And then we'll come back to this passage for some practical steps that we can take. And so here's what Paul says uh, to Timothy. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to lead a big church there. And uh, he's writing this letter to him to help him sort some things out that have gone wrong in there. But he says, here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's all Paul mentions in Timothy. Just a brief few lines, a couple of instructions and a reminder. And so that's really what we are going to look at today. Simply put, Paul says, I want you to pray for everyone. I want you especially to pray for governments and those that have authority because we've got something really important to do. We need to tell everyone about Jesus. That's essentially what he says. I think it's helpful in this moment to, as we're thinking about what does Paul say about how we relate to government, to think about what the government was in his time. Because often when we hear other people's opinions or they say, oh, you should do it like this, you think, well, that may be easy for you to say in your context, but let me tell you what's going on in my life. So let's think about Paul's situation. The government that he was referring to, the king, the one in the high place, was the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, you don't really need to know anything about history to know that that doesn't sound like a good name. You know, I haven't heard much, but I'm pretty sure that's one of the bad guys. Well, you're absolutely right. By and large, that's what he was. And I'm going to tell you some horrible things that he did. And I do that not because I like to revel in it or anything like that, but because it's helpful for us to know what was happening when Paul was writing this and what he was experiencing. Nero became the emperor of the Roman Empire, uh, which was a massive empire won by military conquest and then economic and political kind of arrangements. He became emperor when his uncle Claudius, who had married Nero's mother, who was also Claudius's niece, was poisoned. Claudius was poisoned by his niece, his wife, Nero's mother. Nero later murdered his own mother because once she had got him into a position, she was then trying to get other people into positions, and he didn't like that. He also murdered his stepbrother and many other rivals uh, to keep in power. His behavior um, was often uh, bizarre and unpleasant. And just to focus in on uh, how he uh, dealt with Christians, it was probably ha- this probably happened after Paul wrote 1 Timothy, uh, but before Paul's execution, because Paul was executed under the reign of Nero. Um, Nero, it seems, set fire to an area of Rome that he wanted to rebuild according to his own plan, and people suspected him of this, and so he needed a scapegoat. And he noticed there are a lot of Christians around, this new sect that had arrived. And he thought, well, we can blame them because they're a small minority group, so let's do that. And the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, historian Tacitus, writing The Next Generation, describes what happened. He says, Mockery of all sort was added to their deaths. So they weren't just killed, they were mocked. They were covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. All were nailed to crosses, all were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. 
They were covered in sticky tar and then set fire to so that Nero could have parties after dark. That's who Paul's writing to, uh, Paul's writing about. And so just in case when you think you hear him say, oh, government should be honoured, we should pray for governments, and you're like, whoa, but have you seen Donald Trump? No, have you seen Nero? When you think things aren't how you want it to be and you get angry about how things are in this country, and there are things we can be legitimately angry about. We think, oh, the Bible's just naive. No, no. Paul's writing about the emperor Nero. Paul himself had been part of the Jewish religious authorities that had a degree of power uh, within the province of Judea. And he had used that power to arrest and imprison and even execute Christians. He was then radically saved, had an encounter with God on the road to Damascus and became a Christian himself. And having become a Christian, having learned the truths of God and been called by God uh, to tell other people about it, he then travelled around the Roman Empire doing that. He was able to do that because for all their evil, the Romans also brought something called the Pax Romana, an enforced peace that enabled people to travel around all over the place. And there was a shared language and culture that they had kind of brought, which Paul used to the utmost to travel and tell people about Jesus. On his travels, he saw the proconsul of Cyprus, the guy in charge of Cyprus, become a Christian when Paul went and preached the gospel to him and healed uh, someone. At the same time, or later, uh, Paul was uh, attacked by mobs. He would be arrested by Romans. He was imprisoned for various, uh, various times in various unjust ways. He was kept in prison for two years by the governor of Judea because the governor wanted Paul to give him a bribe to get him out, which Paul never did. So Paul had a mixed experience of government, to say the least. So is that what's going to be what sets Paul's agenda? Is that how he's going to decide how we should respond to government? Well, this happened to me, and this happened to me, and this happened to me, and so here's how I think we should respond. That's not how Paul does it. Paul works out how to respond to government by looking at what God has said in his word. This is so important when the emotional stakes are high as they often are in politics. You often feel strongly about politics because it reveals some of the things that you feel deeply about, your sense of right and wrong. That's really important to us, and rightly so. We feel that, and politics kind of can reveal that, and so we feel strongly. Paul takes all of that. He's a strong-minded man. And he says, what does God's word say? What does God's word tell me? How does that shape my thinking? Paul believed that God is the ultimate authority in the universe, that God had made all things, all things belonged to him, and everything that we have, we have been given as a stewardship to look after on his behalf, which he will assess us for at the end of all time. God is a God of order, not chaos. And that's one of the things that Genesis 1 is all about, showing how chaos is brought into order by God. And societies have always had some way of being ordered so that life can flourish. And this is God's will. It's God's uh, desire that there be order so that we can live our lives. All authority comes from God. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 talks about God. He says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So when you're looking across geopolitical things going on, you're like, what is happening? The Bible says God is in control. He's over all things. 
In the Old Testament, we see God appoint rulers over God's people. So even those who were called by God to have a relationship with him, they had rulers put over them, people like uh, Moses and Joshua, for their good. And God told those rulers and the people what was right and how they should live, and therefore government should conform uh, to that image. He gave Moses the law. We know that most famously in the Ten Commandments, and they show moral laws for how all people are to live. There were particular things for Israel at that particular time, but there was also a revelation from God of this is what I am like, therefore this is what my creation should be like, therefore this is how you should govern to make that happen. We know, obviously, most people don't do that or do so only partially. And so even those rulers in the Old Testament, even those who would say, I've been appointed by God, would still be critiqued by God when they didn't do what he had called them to do. We see in the history in the Old Testament, people often, uh, prophets, going to the kings and saying, what you are doing is not right because it's not in line with what God has said. So it's clear that kings had authority, but they didn't have full autonomy. They didn't have freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. They were always servants of the Most High God. And if that's true for the rulers of God's people, of course it's true for the rulers of all the other nations of the earth. And the Old Testament, again, has loads of examples of those rulers being defied by righteous people. In Egypt, Pharaoh gives a genocidal command that all the baby boys born to Jews are to be killed immediately. There are two Jewish midwives uh, who are meant to, essentially meant to carry that out. They refuse to do so because they know it's wrong. They know uh, that God loves life and that he loves children being born. And so they ignore what the government had told them to do. In Babylon, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they actually work for the king. They're brought through the state education system and then become part of the government and they work for the king. But when the king says, hey, everyone has to worship me, no one can pray to anyone else, that kind of thing, those guys say, absolutely no way. Even if you kill us, and which he does try to do, we obey God rather than you. In Persia, a Jewish woman called Esther becomes one of the many queens that the king has And then here's that the Prime Minister of Persia has a plan uh, for a holocaust of the Jews. And she conspires against him to bring him down and save her people. And so the Bible's telling us these two things simultaneously, that authority and order and government come from God. He establishes it. It's right. It should work for our good. But there are also times when that doesn't happen, and there is a righteousness from God that challenges against that. And so Paul knows all of this. This is his heritage. He was brought up a Jew. He knew that these were the stories and that these were the truths. But above all of this, in Paul's thinking, is the fact that he worships Jesus. Not one God among many, but the only true God. Not one authority among many, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy that we heard read out at Christmas. And we hear it and we think about the child and say, oh, that's nice. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, uh, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So government is already being slightly like, well, it's important, but it's not the main thing. Well, now, all the more so, God is saying, I will establish my rule fully through my chosen one. And that's Jesus. And so Jesus lives 
and preaches and demonstrates the kingdom of God. The first thing in many of the Gospels they say about him, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he means is, I'm here. And I'm bringing the rule and reign of God. Everything Jesus did was what God wanted him to do. The will of God was being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus does this. And by doing so, he shows that there is a rule far higher than the Herodian king uh, who was ruling over the land Jesus lived in. There's a rule higher even than the religious authorities with whom Jesus had many uh, kind of back and forth discussions amongst. And a rule higher than the Roman Empire. The emperor claimed that he was the Lord of Lords. When then a new emperor was uh, announced, it was declared to be good news. And he was Lord. Jesus comes and shows another way. Speaks with authority over everything. Over people, over sicknesses, over nature. He refuses to play politics. When, usually when he gathers a crowd, he upsets them. He says something intentionally to make them distressed, to make them not sure they want to follow him. Sometimes it says they wanted to make him king and so he ran away from them. He disappointed the crowds. He mostly stayed away from the centres of power and he had no agenda except God's. He wasn't wise, as we would say. He never spanned things. He never did what the people wanted him to do. He always did what God wanted him to do. And when challenged to be political, people said to him, they were trying to catch him out, trying to trick him and get him arrested. They said, should we pay tax to Caesar? They're Jews, they hated the Roman authority, and yet they had to pay these taxes. And they say to him, should we pay this tax? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to put Caesar in his place. You give to Caesar what's Caesar. Caesar wants some of your coins, give him your coins. But you need to give to God what is God's. And God's is everything. All of you belong to God, Jesus said. And so Jesus doesn't separate these two kingdoms, says, I'm going to be over here, Caesar's over there. He says, God is over all of that. That's one small part. It was the ruling powers of the day who executed him. Because eventually they couldn't bear to cope with what he was saying because they knew that he was challenging them. But even then, even when he's under arrest and uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, is saying to him, I can release you, you know. Jesus says, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And actually it turned out that all their schemes and all their using of their authority that they thought they had was all part of God's plan. Through their conspiracies, uh, through their uh, wrecking really of their own judicial system so that Jesus was executed, God triumphed over sin and death. Because Jesus faithfully and perfectly obeyed God, he was raised to new life. He was put in our place on the cross. He died and then was risen to new life on the third day. And at that point, all other claims of authority collapse. Because someone can say, well, I'm the governor of this country. And Jesus can say, well, I'm the ruler of the world. And someone can say, yeah, but I've got the power to arrest you and I can put you in prison. I could even execute you. And Jesus says, well, I've, I've triumphed over death, really, so that's not going to work. You, I've given you some power, Jesus says, but I have all power. And this just shuts the mouth of all his rivals. 
And not only does he have a present power, but he says, I'm coming back to judge them. Everyone, every ruler will come before Jesus and be, there'll be an assessment made of how they ruled according to what he had told them to do. How they were supposed to rule will be judged by Jesus. Realising all of this, his followers learned to say that Jesus is Lord. Now we say this quite casually, we sing it in songs, it's a nice thing to say. Jesus is Lord, it means he's in charge, we think about it for ourselves. Okay, I need to obey him. But Jesus is Lord is an intensely political statement because not only was it good news when a, a new emperor was announced, but he was declared to be Lord. Caesar is Lord was the truth of the day. And Christians started to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Not only, therefore, is he challenging Caesar, and it says, so in Acts 17, they say uh, that these Christians are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. That's exactly what they were doing. But they're also saying to Jews, Jesus is Lord. Well, Lord is the title that the Jews used for God. So Jesus isn't just a, he cannot just be a political figure. He's not just in charge like Caesar is on earth. He is God. He's both of those things. One of the images in the Old Testament is of a, a, a statue that represents a series of great kingdoms. And it, it, the statue is made of different um, materials according to how, uh, representing the different kingdoms. And then it says uh, that a rock that no man had carved comes from a mountain and smashes all of those kingdoms and then grows to be the greatest mountain, and the nations flock to it. And that's a picture of what Jesus did and does. He deposes all other kingdoms, and he brings everything to himself. And so this means that Christians have an allegiance far more profound to the nation they belong to. You may have a passport, you may be a citizen of a nation, and there are obligations you have and benefits you have uh, from that, but you are far more obliged to Jesus if you've put your trust in him because he is the Lord of all. He rules over everything. He has your whole life in his hands. But equally, Christians are committed to the common good. Jesus called us to love our neighbours, to want them to succeed and to flourish, and that's what government is supposed to make happen. And so Christians relate in both of these ways to any earthly government. Say, well, the only reason you have authority is because God's given it to you, and here's what you're meant to do with it, and we'd like to help you with that. But if you want to live in a different way, and if you want to do things contrary to what the will of God is, we can't have anything to do with that, because we must obey God rather than you. And so Paul writes in Romans 13, he talks about rulers being God's servant for your good. That's what they're meant to do. God's servant for your good. Rulers should care for the common good. They should promote and execute justice. This has been established by God for the good of all people and therefore a Christian's default position should be to obey and submit to the government that they're under. This means that God is honoured as the one who establishes government and it should mean that society can be well ordered. So you should pay your taxes. And you shouldn't break the speed limit. And you should honour and uphold all laws that benefit others, even if they don't really benefit you. That's what Romans 13 says. That's what Paul writes, writing about a government led by Nero. And, I mean, it just, he, the Bible just has to say it for it to be true, but if it's true for that government, it's true for the governments we're under. 
But of course, there are things, and Paul knew this, that governments allow or insist upon that are in conflict with what God, is, what, with what God has said. And they will be in judgment from him for that. They had a stewardship that he gave them. They have a service that they are meant to do for the good of people. And to the extent that they don't do that, they will come before Jesus and answer to him for that. And so Christians have to work out when obedience to God comes into conflict with submission to government and how to respond at that point. It happens in the Bible. I've just listed a bunch of examples. Uh, Peter and John, the apostles, they were preaching that Jesus was alive. The religious authorities arrest them. They say, you cannot do this. So he thinks a Christian, okay, well, you are a government appointed by God. How do I respond to you? Well, they say, and this is a helpful way of working it through, Acts 4 and 5, they say it twice, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We must obey God rather than men. When, it, when the conflict point comes, when there's, the, when there's gap between what God has said and what those who God has given authority to are saying, then we always, of course, must side with God. And Christians have been working out how to do this ever since with varying degrees of success. This year, for example, is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther sparking the Reformation, which recovered many of the great vital truths that God had given us in his word that the church had forgotten or hidden or distorted. So everything, so many of the things that we enjoy and love as Christians and celebrate as a church here, uh, the church really wasn't speaking much about that until Luther came along, that we are made right in God's eyes by what Jesus has done for us, uh, not by our own efforts, that we receive the blessings that God has for us by faith, by trusting and believing that God will give this to us, not by our good deeds, that we can have a relationship with God personally. We don't need any other priest apart from Jesus that the Bible is God's word and it's final and God's final word to us. We don't need a church tradition that interprets and messes around with that if other things change. All of those things and more, Luther won for us. He had to stand before the Pope and the princes of the day who were telling him that this was not true. They were saying, you've got to stop. You can't say these things. They're wrong. We need you to repent. And he said, there's no way I can do that because God has spoken. And Christianity has a long history of things like that happening. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What shall we do? Verse 4 tells us what matters most to God. He desires all people to be saved. The preaching of the gospel is what matters most. He, even in this political moment that Paul's describing, even when he's talking about, I want you to pray for governments, I want there to be peace, I want you to be quiet. Why? because I like an easy life. No, because God wants all people to be saved and this will be the best circumstances for that to happen. This is what must set our agenda more than anything else. You might have a political preference. You might have other things you're really strongly involved in, you care about. And I'm going to talk about those and say they're great in just a moment. But the starting point is nothing matters more than salvation. Nothing matters more than what's going to happen at the end of this life when you face God. When the people you know face God, the people in our city and our nation and the nations face God, will they have anything to say to him at that point? If they've put their trust in Jesus, they will. He will have rescued them. If they've heard the good news that by giving their lives to him and making him their Lord, they can be saved, then things will be well. But if they haven't heard that, 
even if they were well taken care of through their whole life by a really perfect government, it will have counted for nothing. And so this is what must set our agenda. It's a really common temptation. I think it seems to be um, you know, things like political influence and you see Christians trying to work this out and they're struggling with it and they're saying, but you see, if I had more political influence, I'd probably be able to tell more people about Jesus. And I can see how that would persuade people. But it's not what Jesus did. It's not what the apostles did. They were outcasts. They were outlaws, literally. And they changed the world. So that's what matters most. Here are three practical steps we can take. First one, read the good news more than you read the news. You're all laughing because you know you don't. Yeah? (laughs) Read the good news more than you read the news. The only other thing I read more than... Well, no, anyway. I was reading Lord of the Rings over Christmas, and um, there's a moment where a a character called Aomer is... um, just learning a whole load of things and he's baffled by everything that's going on and he says, how is a man to judge what to do in such times? And that's a question many people are asking right now. Maybe you're asking, how is a man to judge what to do in such times? Aragorn, who's the king and therefore knows these things, says, as he has ever judged, good and evil have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and another's among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in his own house. You mean like elves, golden wood, what is all of that? The point, the point is that what is right and true and good, what God has established, does not change. It's always true. It's always right. And therefore, we must get our perspective on that from what God has said. This is where we go to to see what's true, to understand what is really happening. It might relate to today's headlines, it might not at all, but this is where it is. And if you only watch the news, and if you mostly watch the news, you'll think that that is what's going on, and that is what is ultimate, and what is true. Baraf brought that word earlier, that there are things we can see, God says they are passing away. They will not stand, they will not last. But there is a kingdom that endures forever, and on that we fix our gaze. You can only do that by faith, by looking at what God has said by getting the good news into your life. I remember uh, back in 2004, uh, it was the American election day, and uh, it was was George Bush was campaigning for re-election. And those of you old enough, you will remember that, and you think, man, this is not the first time we've had a president with whom we have, people have huge concerns. And and I was really worried. I was really anxious about it. I was thinking, what is going to happen to the world with this guy comes in, president again, I don't know what's going on, I'm really worried. Again, just my daily Bible reading was Romans 13. And I referenced it already, and Romans 13 says, submit to the governing authorities, they're God's servant for your good. God puts them in place, and essentially says, you're just going to have to live with that. And I felt God say, not in a, a rebuking way, and not in a, that leader can do anything they like, and it's totally fine. I've explained to you how that's not the case. But I, I heard God, I knew God was saying to me, I'm in charge, and you need to trust me on that. And you need to focus on the fact that I'm in charge, not who's just been re-elected or going to be elected or whatever. And that's just given me a peace ever since that I would not have got if I was like, oh, well, see, he did those things good, but oh, those things bad. If you're trying to measure it by politics or whatever, it won't work. But by God's word, it will. I remember the um, independence referendum was going on, and it was the point when... Um, 
a new poll came out that said, maybe it's going to happen in this other way. And so everyone was like, whoa, we didn't think this would happen at all, but now maybe it is going to happen. So everyone's anxious, everyone's worried what's going on, or excited. Either way, you know, stronger emotions. And I, was, I remember sitting on a bus thinking, what is going on with this? What's going to happen? I had my headphones on. I was like, this is not a time to listen to Radiohead or things like that. It's not going to help. I'm going to listen to worship music because I, I need to get my mind fixed on the truths of God. And I was just thinking, thinking, then I realized the lyrics coming in my head were talking about the cross stands above it all, burning bright in this life. The cross towers over it all. And God was saying to me, this could go one way or the other. The cross still stands. Jesus is still Lord. We need to, you, you can't just hear me say this once and be like, I remember a preacher said that once. You've got to know that God is speaking this to you over and over again. I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm not sure what's going to happen. The Lord is in charge. He rules, he reigns. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So you fix your mind on God. You fix your mind on his authority or his rule, his reign, his kingdom. You will find peace comes more readily into your life. If our mind is full of God's truth, we're able to reign steadfast whatever's going on. And people around us who are not Christians need to see this. They need to see that real hope is not determined by the rising and the falling of kings and rulers or anything in this life. Real hope is only found in Christ. And to be honest, I just see so many Christians so anxious about what's going on. And I know there's real things. And it's, I'm not saying I'll just be chilled the whole time. That's not what I'm saying. There's a time to be angry and a time to celebrate. Absolutely. But where's your hope? Well, I just seem to see in some social media streams and, and see how even church leaders, prominent church leaders, have reacted to things like Trump and other stuff like that. I think, where is your hope? It just doesn't seem to be in Jesus at all, that he is the king, that he rules and that he reigns and that he's coming back to make everything new and that he will bring us to salvation, which is a glorious hope forever. And like, oh, things aren't going quite as well as I want them to under this current administration. Like, this administration is going to last for five years. I've got eternity. I make it a point to read the Bible before I've read the day's news headlines. Because I'm, I'm saying, these are my priorities. This is the way it's got to go. If you, open your, if you wake up, open your phone, look at what's going on, you're going to be concerned. If you wake up, God's word. Are you still going to be troubled? Because it's going to trouble you. You might still be concerned because it's real. But it's also going to tell you that the Lord reigns. Uh, okay, I haven't got time for that, fine. <sighs> just quickly, just the news is almost never written by Christians. It's almost always written by people with a bias. You recognize your own bias. You don't recognize other people's bias. Just, I would recommend you watch virtually nothing about Trump because it's just going to encourage you in um, contempt and self-satisfaction. It is. You're, you're not going to watch it with a sense of, burning sense of justice and I really care about this and oh this is terrible I wonder how those poor people are coping you're going to think I'm not that guy that's mostly what you're going to think probably those of you who got more sensitive hearts that's fine but that's what most people think and I just don't think it's going to do you any good so second point pray more than you complain pray more than you complain that's what we're explicitly told to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2 
Paul mentions different types of prayer, and these imply that we're going to be happy with some things and less happy with other things. He says we're to give thanks for any and all benefits we can find. He says pray with thanksgiving. Do you do that? When was the last time you gave thanks for our government? Have you ever done this for the government? Actually, we live in a place where electricity uh, comes in and there's heating and there's a rule of law and that there's a health service and that every, so many good things we have is a common grace of God that comes to us through government, however imperfectly. There's a right time and a place to give thanks. It also says we're to intercede for others. So that's meaning not just pray about what you want, but actually stepping in on, on another's behalf. Maybe someone who isn't even interested in you praying for them have you prayed for Donald Trump this week? If you prayed, Lord, he's, gonna, he's one of the most powerful men in the world right now. He's not qualified. Would you please give him some grace? Have you prayed for him? He may think he's going to perfectly be fine, but we know he's not. Have you prayed for Theresa May? Have you prayed for Nicola Sturgeon? Whatever your politics, whatever you feel about them, have you prayed for them? Paul says we should, we must. Uh, some pre- when I'm, so I'm seeing the news, I, there's lots going on, we're meant to feel strongly about all of it, can't, but you can pray in that moment. It's an intercession. You see a news item, this awful thing's happened to this person, you think, oh, that's terrible. Lord, would you bless them? Please somehow have mercy in that situation. Please come into that. It's like a breath prayer or a bullet point. That's all it is, and then you've got to move on because you can't pray about everything. And we're to make supplication. Supplication, you're saying, Lord, please, would you change this situation? This is not right. This is evil. This is wrong. This just could be better. Any of those uh, perspectives, Lord, this, uh, please, will you change it? Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, I mean, let's pray, surely? <laughs> if God's in charge, if God can do that, we should pray. How he chooses to respond to that prayer is up to him. And I think it's at that moment that Psalm 131 comes into the equation. And there are some things we think, Lord, I don't understand. So that's too lofty for me. But I'm going to pray. I can pray. I say, Lord, I prayed. I prayed what I felt was the best. I asked for your will to be done. Pray for that person. I prayed for that situation. Maybe for some things you'll pray about them for years. God's put them on your heart. You care passionately about them. You're going to pray and pray and pray. And that's what you're responsible for. God's responsible for how he changes it. That's his job. When you've done all of that, when you've prayed in all of these ways, then I think it's okay to complain in an honourable way. But if you never give thanks for anything, if no one ever hears anything positive from you, apart from here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, they think, well, you just hate everything. And actually, that's not the full picture that a Christian's meant to experience. We give thanks where we can give thanks. And we honour those who are in authority because God's told us to. Third thing, get involved. Paul talks about living a dignified life, one which people can observe and respect. Now, people aren't always going to observe and respect your life as a Christian because you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and they think that's ridiculous. And because you think that God determines what's true and right about everything rather than individual autonomy and people don't like that right now. So it's not that well, if you live a good life and do some good deeds, everyone will think, oh, you're perfect. I'm going to listen to you. But actually... The conversation in this country about the church has been radically changed by food banks over the last six or eight years. Radically changed. And people who hate God and hate the church 
they're grudgingly acknowledging it, but they have to acknowledge it because the church has done good. Even if it didn't help our reputation, it's just right. And that's one of the reasons we're going to have soup in a few minutes because we want to bless those who are in need and we do that as a church. We help care for the homeless, the isolated elderly, local young people, families who are struggling. I know that many others of you in your jobs and in your other spare time are serving, looking to bless people, looking to do them good, looking to help them. I know that just people as well, just personal situations you're involved in, you're like, how can I help here? Maybe you're called to serve in another way. Desmond Tutu said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And maybe that's what God's calling you to do. Maybe you're, I'm helping you in your need, or maybe you feel, actually, I need to go and prevent this need from happening in the first place. That's a good and righteous thing to do. Maybe that even will involve politics for you. Well, then you better be motivated by love. Because that's what God calls you to do. And ego is a powerful temptation in politics, it would seem. I mean, it tempts me just when I want to talk about it. So it must tempt those who are in it. And so you need to think and pray and get wise counsel. Remember that Jesus' power and authority came through sacrifice and obedience to God. The same will be true for us. If we're opposed by the government, we're opposed by the government. We don't need it. It's helpful when it's with us. It's great that we uh, charity and they give us um, gift aid. It's great that they, uh, we can partner with them in some things. If they change their minds on that, it's fine. God's still in charge. He is. God has brought us onto his side. And he will accomplish what he intends with us so long as we are faithful. That's what's needed. Okay, we're going to finish. I started with Psalm 131. It told us to put our trust in God alone, whatever's happening. So often with governments, we assume that we're in the right and they're wrong. We don't trust them. And maybe it really is as often that way around as we think. But I, my feeling is that that way of thinking gets into the way of thinking of how we relate to God. If things have gone wrong, it's his fault. We're aware of the wrongs of others more than ourselves. Trump is perfect for this, let alone any other politicians in the UK who you disagree with. And there'll be people who will encourage you in that. Look at those people's wrongs. Look at the mess they're making. Look at their awful sin. Don't worry about yourself. Look at them. We want to live our own way instead of his. We need to repent of that. It's a wickedness in our heart that sets ourselves up in rebellion against God, that disputes his government over all things. And so we need to repent of that and know this great news that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So let's pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to pray for those in high places and then we're going to pray to God in the highest. Lord, this is, this is complicated. It's complex. It involves lots of people. And all of us, with all of our mess, and all our inclinations to go the wrong way, and all our biases that we think are righteous and sometimes aren't. 
So thank you for giving us wisdom. And then just like you have in 1 Timothy 2, a simplicity of pray for them. Pray for them. Lord, we repent where we feel really self-righteous. And we ask for grace to be humble and grace to serve. And for those many of you who are serving and striving for good to be done and you just feel it's hard because of government or, and other things like that, just grace to you. And so, Lord, we pray that those who are in high places would be blessed. That they would be blessed so that others could be blessed too. We ask for them to have wisdom. Huge amounts of wisdom. We ask for their advisors to be godly and righteous. We ask that you would, re- you would restrain evil. We ask that there would be justice in this land and in all the nations of the world. We thank you uh, for the rule of law that uh, enables people to flourish. We thank you that comes ultimately from you. Please, would that spread across the world? I want to pray, Lord, that you would bless Nicola Sturgeon, that you bless Theresa May, that you would bless Donald Trump, and that you would bless other governments and rulers that people here maybe are aware of and know of, and their homelands or other things that they're particularly involved with. You bless those people. Would you be their sufficiency? Would they realize their need of you, put their trust in you, and be righteous rulers for the good of all people? Let's pray together. Pray Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.